$3 from the correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. Thank you for using Global Telling. Welcome to the Short Fuse podcast produced by Elizabeth Howard and distributed by the Arts Fuse, the online journal of arts commentary and criticism. Our conversations are with artists, writers, musicians, and others whose work reveals our communities through their lens and stirs us to seek change. James Baldwin said, artists are here to disturb the peace. I'm Elizabeth Howard, your host. In this episode of the Short Fuse podcast, I am in conversation with Valina Beattie and Tasha Mercedes Shelby. Valina is the author of Manifesting Justice, Wrongly Convicted Women Reclaim Their Rights. She is a former federal prosecutor and was a commissioner of the West Virginia Governor's Indigent Defense Commission. She's involved with the National Innocence Network. Currently, she's a professor at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University and the deputy director of the Academy for Justice, a social justice center at Arizona State that connects research with policy reform. Tasha is incarcerated in the central Mississippi Correctional Facility, filling out a life sentence for a capital murder. For decades, she has proclaimed her innocence in the death of her two-and-a-half-year-old stepson who had a seizure and fell from his bed to his death. The Mississippi State Medical Examiner, Dr. Leroy Riddick, testified at her trial that the child was violently shaken to death. That is undisputed. That was in 2000. On October 3rd, this was the headline in a Colorado Springs Channel 11 news bulletin. I made a mistake. Medical examiner changes homicide finding, but convicted woman still remains behind bars. For decades, Tasha Selby had been proclaiming her innocence before someone finally believed her, the doctor whose own testimony sent the young woman to prison for life. Tasha is calling us from a prison phone we have limited time to talk, and it may be difficult to incorporate her audio into our recording. Hello. Hello, Tasha. It's just wonderful to have you in conversation with us. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Tasha, can you tell me what it was like when you heard the judge sentence you to life in prison? How did it feel, both mentally and physically? In that moment, a lot of people, I think, forget that I was, like, facing the death penalty. All I kept thinking was that, you know, because they had came back with a guilty verdict, so the sentencing took place the next day. And when they had found me guilty, I really just believed that it was going to be bred to me death by lethal injection. I was still so young, I kind of didn't comprehend or really understand what the death penalty meant. And I thought that that meant they were going to kill me that night. And so when they read the sentencing and said life without parole, I really didn't even hear the without parole part because when they said life, I just kind of said thank you, Jesus, because I just felt like I was going to be able to live and fight. In that moment, that's what that felt like for me. I was just so grateful that they had not said the death penalty. 
my body did feel weak. I remember feeling my knees kind of like buckle a little, like feel like I was going to fall. I was holding myself up with my hands on the desk a little. Um, but yeah, it just kind of felt like, it just felt like, thank you, Jesus, because I wasn't going to die that night in my mind. That's what I thought, you know? I, I understand you've written a poem or, or that you wrote a poem that evening. Could you read it to us? Sure. See, I think I actually brought it with me. So that night, um, that night when I went back to the block, they had told me that, you know, I was going to, before I even went into the, the area, you know, they had the guards there. I had been in my county jail for three, three years waiting to go to trial. And the guards had told me, you know, hey, it was on the news. Everybody knows. They were very apologetic about the fact that they were going to have to put me on suicide watch because a sentence with that magnitude, the gravity of everything that was happening, I guess they just have to watch over you. And so I felt like whenever I walked in that I thought people were just going to be already judging me because I had been there for three years saying, I'm innocent. I'm going home because I really believed that I was going home. I believed in the justice system. I thought the truth would come out. So that night when they put me in what's called the day room, and I had to sleep out for everyone to just kind of stare at me. I was on display. It's kind of how I felt. Before I walked in, I kind of like had to make a decision before they popped the zone door. And then that night I stood up, and then these words are what came to me, and it's called Am I? And it goes, when I started to walk in there with my head hung low in shame, I had to reconsider, for I know I'm not to blame. And though this journey I will walk is a new one I've never known. I'll walk with pride, my head held high, for I'll never walk alone. I felt your arms around me. My strength will come from you. You gave to me my family who believes in me too. So thank you, Jesus, for believing in me. While others may point and stare, my back I'll never turn on you. My faith will still be there. I'll not doubt your reasons. I'll not question why. I'll make you a proud father. A child for you, am I? That's a beautiful poem. Tasha. Thank you very much. Uh, when, when Alfred Woodfox walked out of Angola, Louisiana's notorious state penitentiary and the largest maximum security prison in the United States. It was his 69th birthday. It was February 2016. And he had spent 43 years on the inside, most in solitary confinement in a six by nine foot concrete cell for also for a murder that he didn't commit. Probably the longest serving American in solitary confinement. And in his book entitled Solitary, My Story of Transformation and Hope, he writes that this, this being in prison had tested his mental fortitude to the limit. It had made him search into reserves of compassion and resilience he never knew he had. And he also wrote about the importance of prison routine since every day is the same. You learn the routine, you learn the culture, you learn to play between the lines. How do you how do you get through the years? How how do you understand time? Um, I follow Mr. Woodfox. You know his story, um, his his compassion, and what he was able to give back to the world before he passed away recently has definitely been a source of inspiration for someone like myself. 
but yeah, you do. I what he said about the reserve really resonates with me. I feel like in each of us, there's something inside of us that we don't really recognize, that we don't know that it exists until we have to call upon it. And you have to find a way to get into that and and carry on. Time for me, um, I still feel like sometimes that time has slowed down so much for me. And at the same time, it's gone by so fast, if that makes sense. Um, you do get caught up in the routines and you have to walk the lines of prison. You have to, you know, bow to their every whim. And I feel like I've seen my family's life continue to move on, but I feel like I still think of my children as, as you know, so young. I still think of my siblings as so young. And yet here they are, they have children and have had marriages. And it's very hard to find the the bridge to connect what has moved forward out there yet has felt like it's still in here. And then sometimes I feel like I've never even um, lived life in the free world. I feel like my whole life has been inside of a prison. That makes sense. How old were you when you were first incarcerated? I was arrested on August 13th, 1997, and I was 22 years old. And then I was, I sat in my county jail for three years waiting to go to trial and then was sentenced at 25 to life without parole and have been in the prison since then. So since 22 and I'm 47. Tasha, you write that you want to rise with strength, beauty, acceptance, forgiveness, and love. Helene Flowers, the artist and creative who was given two life sentences when he was 16 and labeled a super predator and is now doing extraordinary work on the outside, told me he always felt in his core that he would be great. Um, that he just felt it would take time for him to get out. He would, it was creativity, writing, and reading that kept Helene strong in prison. What um, Valina has told me that you've been doing a lot of writing as well and that you've had a number of educational opportunities in prison. The educational part only started coming basically to the degree of a college-level education. was introduced into my life in 2016, and it's kind of where I kind of really just recognize my abilities, my capabilities, and my voice, if you will. Um, I've been writing since I was like 11 years old. My brother, Jacob, when I was 11, had given me a diary for my birthday. And he was like a six-year-old kid and he got me this cute little diary and it had a key and I just thought, wow, that's cool, I can write my thoughts. And so that's kind of what sparked my writing. And people in, in my life have always told me I could write, but I didn't believe in it myself until about 2016. And I was able to write in another format, which was the essays that I began writing. Um, and being prompted by, you know, thought-provoking questions and, and responding to these. And so that has definitely helped me recognize my voice. It, it's brought attention to women in our past of our country and how they use their voices in ways that were, you know, so um, 
forward thinking for their time. And it just kind of has helped me to be able to have a voice as well and empowered me to be able to write and and show my creative side and tap into something. If, even if I don't think anyone's listening, I will write something for a day when I think that somebody might hear it or might listen for it, even if it's not in the now. I, I write the future audiences in mind. I understand you've written a children's book. Yes, I have. It's it's based on a true story, and it is um, it was written for my son Dakota from a time in our life when we lived in a, a town in North Mississippi, and it's called Dakota and Austin's Train Adventure, which was Dakota's little cousin. Yeah, it's just kind of told through the eyes of a story, uh, told through the eyes of a, a kitten that had came up on our porch. And I'm, I'm letting, um, the cat has like now lived so many lives and he's reflecting on some good memories and he's remembering the story of, of Dakota and his mama, me, of course, and just telling the story through the cat's lens as an old cat. <laughs> you wrote an essay uh, entitled Steel Vaults from Slavery to Modern Prisons. After reading Margaret Walker's novel, Jubilee, you noted that the main character was a slave, and as a prisoner, you feel the same way. You compare your life being looked down upon and how you are living with one foot in bondage and another in the hope of freedom. Um, And you suggest that slavery is not ended. It exists in a sort of mirror image parallel through today's prison system. Yeah. I strongly believe in that. I would never um, try to compare the actual life of what, you know, slavery looked like in that time. But there is definitely, you know, parallels from the point of view that you are in an endless battle in a war for freedom. You, you know, feeling like you can't see any light at the end of the tunnel. You are labeled a social pariah. You are looked down upon. You are, you know, told what you can do, when you can do it. All of these things, there's such a resignation of the punishment and and the experience of the, you know, the daily degradation and the attempts to lower the self-esteem and the mental capacity. And I just really feel very powerful that slavery is not over it it comes in many shapes and forms and i feel like that's what america especially uses just as not a form of rehabilitation but retribution for sure you must form wonderful friendships with other women in prison you know since um you i think it must be when i think about time and we think of how we mark time. And all of us had a chance to kind of look at this through COVID for those two years, that those things, birthdays, anniversaries, weddings, those markers that pull us through the narrative of our of our lives. And you don't have those, but you in the same way that we do, but you must have them. You you share one another's feelings. Oh, for sure. You know, you do create bonds here. You, you know, you feel a connection 
from the, you know, the similar struggle of just living day to day inside of this, this place. And there's, there's one particular woman who she and I have completely done. She's from the same county jail that I am from. And we were both just kids when we were, you know, locked up. She was locked up 29 days before me. And so this woman, her name is Tara Bolton, and I have spent more time in a surrounding and in a life with her than I have ever spent with anyone in my family that is blood or otherwise related. You do become a family. You know, it's like right or wrong, good or bad. You know, time takes effects on you differently from, from each person to the next. And there's no right or wrong way to handle this situation. You know, there's a better way, you know, but everyone has to do it how it works for them. And you you form these bonds, even if it's someone that you don't necessarily agree with everything about their lifestyle within this place. You're, you can look out and recognize the same person and it feels familiar and it feels comforting and it feels, you know, I would never want to call this place home, but being able to see someone that you and shared so much with that feeling feels like home. And I, I understand that actually when you leave prison, you cannot communicate with the people who are left there. That is that has been the narrative for a long time, but I tend to um, lean towards I'm going to fight for that. How do you forget people? How do you you can never forget this? This is a part of who I am. These, you know, these women have become a part of my very existence. I am going to be someone who wants to come back in the prison system and be a light that can shine and see, let people see that, you know, this can happen and there can be someone who can get out and not forget about you. And I want to be able to come in and be a speaker. You know, I want to motivate the women. I want to be a voice for the women. And I, I tend to know who I am and I'm going to do that. That is that is a fight I'm going to carry on with me beyond these walls. So many people have. We look at Nelson Mandela and you know Alfred Woodfox and and there are I've met several women who have become motivational speakers and written books and started organizations. So I hope Tasha when uh, when you're released we'll all support you in your in your efforts to make a difference. Yeah, I, I hope so too. Thank you very much. Would you like to, I don't even know how much time we have. Would you like to read another poem? Okay, I have one that it, I drew a picture that goes with it almost. And, um, well, it does go with it, but it's like an hourglass and it's called the hourglass. Dakota, little Brian, Devin, the memories remain. Every day in my heart, each of your names. The sand on the bottom considerably shows. Rains continue falling. My grief still grows. The hourglass holding more than just the sands of time. The years disappearing inside this life of mine. Aching for our family, the laughter, the sound. But they say that you have one minute remaining. It never found. Tasha, thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate everything.
Sorry, I, I, you know, it just makes me so emotional. Talking to a human who's, who's living and has lived for years in incarceration in a prison and still has spirit to lift up others and do for others. Um, it's incredible. Before we start talking about your book, Manifesting Justice, um, Felina, can we talk a, a little bit about your representing Tasha Shelby? The complexity of taking this case back through the courts, the doctor who testified against her is admitted to making a mistake. I, I know you've been working on this for 12 years. What, what are the next steps? And do you think, think she might be released? And of course, then if she is released and she's on parole, then that will also has its own restrictions. <laughs> I absolutely believe she will be released, uh, even though I know how hard the struggle is to reverse a conviction and reverse a wrongful conviction. Uh, I absolutely believe that she will be free. I think just enough people need to hear her story, know her story. Uh, we've had our case before individual judges, and they've simply thought that the evidence of her innocence wasn't enough, even though, again, this doctor changed his own medical opinion. He changed the death certificate of the child from homicide to accident. There's not even evidence to prosecute Tasha again, frankly. Um, so we are in front of a judge right now uh, and hopeful, but we're also looking for public pressure on the local DA in Harrison County, Mr. Crosby, Crosby Parker. We're also looking for pressure on the Mississippi governor, Tate Reeves, to uh, grant a pardon or commute her sentence, uh, and also on the attorney general, Lynn Fitch. So we're trying many different pathways. And Elizabeth, thank you so much for allowing her to share her story and also share um, her personal self as a writer and as someone who uh, really does look to not only grow her own education and self, but to help others. Such a struggle. Um, Gay Wally, a writer, has published a novel entitled Prison Sex. She has a friend who was in prison and she visited him regularly. That was the nonfiction part of this, but, but her novel is looking at relationships. Yet I've read that Visiting rooms for in women's prisons are very different from visiting rooms in men's prison. You know, women support the men perhaps a little bit more than women support other women. Have you found that? So I will say uh, in the West Virginia Innocence Project, and I've heard that this has been true with other projects and conviction integrity units, we frequently hear from women who are writing in about uh, men who are wrongly incarcerated uh, and writing in for justice for these men. But we much more rarely get letters in support of women. And that's been sad for me to see that we just don't see that same collective support for women who are incarcerated uh, that we do for men who are incarcerated. Yeah. And particularly since they are mothers so that, that yeah. you have to see, you know, the children there. You have to, you know, this this is a, a different relationship. Well, and I'm so glad you said that because in most states, there's one women's prison. 
So that could mean wherever the mother is located, she could be five hours, seven hours away from her children. While for men, they can be at prisons that are closer to the family. It's a real struggle for mothers who are incarcerated. Valina, your book was difficult to put down. And I was actually reading it the weekend I attended a Black Panther Film Festival and watched a documentary on the Angola Three. Uh, I actually had an opportunity to meet Alfred Wood Fox when he at the Fortune Society in New York after his book was published. And he he seemed, he exuded peacefulness. You know, he was gentle and peaceful. His voice was so quiet. It was, it was almost difficult to hear him when he spoke, but I thought that probably he tuned out the noise, you know, and that's where this, you know, this soft voice came from. But you began your career as a federal prosecutor. How did you become, how did you go from being a prosecutor to becoming an advocate for the innocent and then helping exonerate wrong, wrongfully convicted clients? Well, my um, journey on this started in college when I was a rape victim advocate. Uh, and I was on call to hospitals uh, around the city of Chicago and would be there when a survivor came into the emergency room and would advocate for them uh, in response to police coming into the um, hospital uh, or uh, doctors. Um, we didn't have as many sane nurses at that time who who might not be as respectful of survivors as, as they should be. Uh, and through that, I decided I really wanted to go to law school and I wanted to prosecute people who committed sexual violence. We know a lot of people who commit sexual violence are repeat offenders. And I wanted to stop those cycles of violence. I wanted to incarcerate uh, those offenders. I was a carceral feminist. And I went to law school and I got my dream job and became a prosecutor, prosecuting domestic violence and sexual violence. And that's when I started to see that incarceration was not the answer that I thought it was, that it doesn't necessarily stop those cycles of violence, that uh, prosecutions are not successful that often. Uh, and they also re-traumatize survivors. Uh, and it, it, frequently survivors wanted nothing to do with me, nothing to do with me. Uh, they, they didn't want to be involved in this. And so I became a more desensitized person who kept pushing forward for these prosecutions, even when it was harmful to the survivors. And what changed everything for me was meeting an exoneree, meeting someone who had been wrongfully convicted of sexual violence and murder, and having that self-reflection of what goes wrong with these prosecutions and what goes wrong in our system. That was the moment, LaVon Brooks, an exoneree in Mississippi, that was the moment that uh, I, I realized that I really wanted to be fighting and advocating for the people who had been wrongfully convicted. There's so much information in your book. Let's begin with the title, Manifesting Justice, which is a reference to the legal mechanism, Manifest Justice, which is where the, the title comes from. And Manifest Justice allows a defendant to withdraw their guilty plea after a conviction. Sure. And it's even broader than that. 
So uh, it's a reason to reverse the conviction. It's a reason to withdraw a guilty plea. Uh, but it can be a, a broad step that a court takes to reverse an injustice. And instead of looking at, has this person proven their innocence? It's looking at, what is everything that's going wrong here? What's go if it's a conviction? Uh, let's look at the false testimony that was presented at trial. Um, like in Tasha's case, the doctor who presented false evidence. Let's look at the evidence that was uh, exculpatory that showed the defendant didn't do it that wasn't turned over by the prosecution. Uh, let's look at the the police behavior. So all these different things that go wrong in our system. Looking at all of those together and saying, you know what? this conviction or this guilty plea, they're not just. It's a manifest injustice. And let's look at all of that and reverse it. You write, wrongful conviction is wrong, police violence is real, incarcerating people of color for decades for pushing drug use is real, women sentenced to lifetime in prison for this connection are blazingly real and encompass a swath of people. These are the hallmarks of mass incarceration, racism, discrimination based on prior involvement with police and the courts, and no avenues for relief after conviction. You, you see this through your work. Why don't more Americans understand this injustice? I think many of us don't want to look at it. You know, it's so It's hard. too painful. It's it too is. hard. It's too painful. It's very painful. And it's so overwhelming when you think of uh, over a million people, you know, that this is impacting. Uh, and that's why, I mean, what I tried to do in my book was also bring people into the case of one of my clients and her co-defendant that like with Tasha, like that's the way in for people is to connect with the story of one person and then to realize, you know what, it's not just this one person. Um, what can we do to change this whole system as it is? But it can seem just so sad, depressing and overwhelming. You write about this other, this other case of so these three women, uh, two of them, Tammy and Lee, are gay, and they're accused of sexually abusing the third woman, Kim. Interestingly, they were all leaving the same rehab center together. And it's clear the way you describe this, that they are not guilty. I mean, you you know, you just, you read it and you, you can understand. Um, and yet, Kim ends up in conscious and in a hospital and Tammy and Leah uh, end up spending years in prison. How many years were they in prison? Ten years. Ten years. And again, we have a dentist who was considered an authority who identified teeth marks on the body of one of the women and took these sort of lured photographs that never should have been taken. Um, and he also admitted that he made a mistake and that there was no scientific uh, backing for his report. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And this is a common component of wrongful convictions of women is faulty scientific evidence or faulty forensic evidence that's presented at trial. Uh, so it's not just Lee and Tammy. It's not just Tasha. This is a common factor. And actually 75% of women who have been exonerated uh, were wrongly convicted where no crime occurred. So there was uh, electrical fire and they were charged with arson. 
or um, a child has a seizure and dies and they're charged with murder. And those convictions are won by using faulty forensic evidence or faulty scientific evidence. You write the specter of criminality moves ceaselessly through the lives of LGBT people in the United States. It is the enduring product of persistent melding of homosexuality, gender nonconformity with concepts of danger, degeneracy, disorder, deception, disease, contagion, depravity, subversion, treachery, and violence, the criminalization of LGBT people in, in the U.S. And can you help us understand this through your perspective and lens as a gay woman? Yes. So as a queer woman, I have been um, very uh, attentive and committed to representing queer people and women uh, who have been wrongfully convicted. But uh, it's even beyond that, that there's the targeting of queer people by police or people who are gender nonconforming, who uh, stand out. That uh, targeting then also continues with charges. And these stereotypes of queer people as dangerous, as deviant, uh, often correlates to wrongful allegations of sexual violence, that because they are stereotyped as deviant in their own personal sexual relationships, obviously, I do not agree with that. But because there's that stereotype, sometimes it's a short jump to then say, oh, well, queer people are more likely to commit violent sexual assaults. And they're not. There's nothing to back that up. But these stereotypes build on each other and then lead to these wrongful charges. And we have the San Antonio Four, who are four women, three of them are Latina, who were wrongfully convicted of sexual violence, again, just based on these stereotypes about queer people. Uh, and that case was heightened by the satanic panic that these women are uh, committing the sexual violence as part of satanic rituals. I mean, it just spirals out of control. And sadly, we see these same stereotypes and the same fear today in allegations of grooming against gay men, uh, in anti-trans bills that have been passing uh, that really, again, are labeling queer people as uh, dangerous, deviant, separate as other. Um, I think you noted in the book, too, that the number of women being incarcerated is increasing. Absolutely. Since 1980, it's been rising and rising. Yes. Do you think that's because women have more power, more opportunities to do things now? No, I think it's because uh, we incarcerate more people in general. So the incarceration rate has gone up tremendously. I think it's because of the war on drugs. Uh, a lot of women are incarcerated because of tangential behavior to what a man has done. And that's often uh, related to drugs. Uh, so conspiracy charges where a woman is the go-between in a drug deal or uh, is driving a car or agrees to get packages at her home. A lot of those convictions uh, are sadly tangential to a man and what he's doing. And frankly, often the woman will get a harsher sentence than uh, the man does. What do you think it will take to really reform our system? I think it takes acknowledging that we have other paths to address 
cycles of violence, which was my initial concern as a rape victim advocate and as a prosecutor. There are other paths to address uh, violence in our communities. And for nonviolent offenses, what is incarceration doing for drug offenses? I mean, is that stopping people from using controlled substances? Is that helping people who have substance use disorder overcome substance use disorder and addiction? What is our system really doing? There are other solutions. And we've seen a number of states and prosecutor's offices that have been looking at other solutions. So I encourage that. I encourage us seeing uh, incarceration as not the end-all, be-all solution for all of these social problems. People commenting on your book have said that it will showcase women in the innocence movement, educate readers about the system, lead to reform. Are you hopeful? Yes. Yes, I am. <laughs> um, every year, there's more and more people who are exonerated. Uh, every year, it becomes more common for people to realize, wow, you know what? Yes, uh, there are um, tremendous problems with incarceration. And uh, I'm going to, to believe you that uh, you didn't commit this crime and you have evidence you didn't commit this crime. I just think there's more and more uh, power behind innocence work. And that carries over to, well, we should change our prisons. We should really change uh, our whole criminal legal system. Lena, I just, I want to say thank you. Um, but again, the book is Manifesting Justice, Wrongly Convicted Women Reclaim Their Rights. And you can find it on the Short Fuse podcast website, which is just shortfusepodcast.com. Um, you can order it through Bookshop, which leads you to your local independent bookstore. So I hope that all of our listeners will order your book and read it. and. And take a little time to understand what does need to be done and why our system needs to be reformed. Thank you, Elizabeth. If you have enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe. You can connect with us through Elizabeth Howard at eh at elizabethhoward.com. You can find us on Spotify and on Apple, on Simplecast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join us next time when we engage, explore, and ask questions.